Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Every decision you make, every decision I make comes by way of faith. Therefore, somebody might say, well, you know, I don't need faith. I don't, I don't think about those things. Every decision, every choice we make about everything on the planet comes by the way of faith. You say, well, is it practical? How practical is that? If we can't do anything, accomplish anything, make any decision without faith, that's pretty practical, isn't it? The truth is you are your brother's keeper. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young wraps up his message, Rejected, and helps you see how a heart focused on your own needs will rob you of life. Stay with us to hear that powerful message from Dr. Young next on The Winning Walk. Here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, How to Make Decisions. We've been reading through the Bible together. Many of us, most of us, have a chronological Bible. As you know, that's a Bible written in history. The Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is not a consecutive history. Therefore, Books have been put in the proper place and verses in the proper place. And if you've been reading through the Bible, we've made all our way to Exodus, right? Four, five, six, seven, that's where we are. And we have sold and will soon sell over 40,000 chronological Bibles to our church family. Just think about it. What a thrill it is. We take out our Bible and we read that passage every day. We're reading with 30 or 40,000 others who are reading it with us at the same time. To me, that's just overpowering. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And as we have gone through the study of the scripture, the desire, the end game is, when we get through, you and I will begin to have the mind of Christ. We will think biblically, and it will change everything about our lives, reading through the scripture and letting the Holy Spirit take those verses and apply them right in the middle of where you and I make decisions every day of our life. It's easy to get behind and forget where we are. We began with Adam and Eve. We went through their fall in the garden that affects everybody here to this very day. Then we looked at Cain and Abel and saw Cain kill his younger brother. And then we ran into all of those genealogies. Remember all those names? We just name after name after name, family after family after family. And you say, well, what's going on here? You have two genealogies. You have two family lines developing. You have the line of Cain, which is a godless line, a godless production of fallen families. Remember, a part of the punishment of Cain was that God put him in the land of Nod. And the land of Nod is a land of wandering, the land where you don't have a, a place to live. You have no 
place to exist, just wondering, wondering, wondering. Australia has given us an illustration of what it means to have a home. It says a home is a place of permanence, a place of security, and a place where you can come and go as you want to. That is how the Australians define home. And as we look on the earth today, we see a lot of people are living in the land of Nod, wondering. No moorings, no real relationship, no stability. Virtually no family and no home. Refugees in the worldwide, the latest figures show they're between 150 and 160 million people all over the world. No place to reside, no, no roots, no moorings, no place they can call home. 150 to 60 million people worldwide. In the United States alone, conservatively, the last count was there were 554,000 citizens of America who have no home, they have no moorings, no family. They're living in the land of, of Nod. And that was a punishment for the descendants of Cain, the Canaanites. But there was another lineage that came through, the descendants of Seth. Seth took the place of Abel and you see Descendants that walk with God, and you see descendants that walked away from God. They walked with or they walked away. And that is reported all the way through those early passages in Genesis, the genealogies. And then we see suddenly there was intermarriage. Godless men married godly daughters and it continued, it continued, it continued until finally the whole earth, with the exception of one family, was godless, without hope. We see that happening all the time. We don't have to read the Bible to see that. You see a fine Christian teenager marries a guy who's sort of quasi-Christian. Oh, he's a member of the Presbyterian Baptist Methodist Catholic. He's a Christian, quasi-Christian. And they have sons and daughters who are, who are semi-Christians. And they get married and they have children who have really no relationship with God or Christ. It's long since put behind them in a world of pleasure and hedonism. We see it happen all the time in our families, your family, my family. And there's just a sliding away, a sliding away from those who walk with God and those who walked away from God it's marriage, it's marriage again, the second and third generation. I remember as a teenager being in church, and I heard somebody talk about how sins are passed on to the second and third generation. I remember as a teenager saying, that's not right, that doesn't work, that's not accurate. But I see that it is right, it is, that's how things do work. And that's what happened in the sweep of history. By the way, we look at all of this history not just to understand it and to walk in it, but we begin to identify and see how it operates today, even in your life and in my life. So you have intermarriage, Seth, godly, Cain, godless, until finally most of the earth was godless with one shining 
exception. Our guy Noah. Noah. Noah was a man of faith, the Bible tells us. And he had a wife and sons married wives, and they had a household, a family of faith, which was countercultural, going in the opposite direction of everybody else on the planet. So judgment came in the form of a flood. By the way, people wonder how in the world God could send a flood and wipe everybody out. Let's go back and look at another illustration in later history. We wonder how God could take Sodom and Gomorrah, take two large cities and just destroy everybody. Oh, that God is a God of wrath. Oh, God is a God of judgment. God is a severe, mean, vindictive God. No, no, no. When he wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah, it wasn't a God of wrath. It was a God of mercy. Mercy on the unborn generations. When God sees that in this culture, this climate, there is no hope, there's no chance of someone coming to know him and have a life that has validity, it is an act of mercy on the unborn that eliminates those people from the earth. This has been true throughout history. And that's exactly what happened with the flood. The floodwaters came and destroyed everybody, but they had at least 120 years, Genesis 6, 3, 120 years to turn back to God. Oh, yeah. Because that's when God said to Noah, go build a boat. Now, that's crazy. He was 100 miles from any body of water. Nobody had ever seen it rain. Moisture came from the earth. The first rain that was recorded in history was with the floodwaters that came those 40 days and 40 nights. Here he is building a boat. This righteous man, this God-fearing man, this worshiping man, and you can imagine the ridicule. Well, no, what are you building there, man? Uh, large proportions, isn't it? By the way, you remember the dimensions of, uh, of the ark? 150 feet long, a football and a half long in honor of the Super Bowl. I'll give you that most measure. A football and a half long, feel long, uh, 25 yards wide, 15 yards high. It wasn't for going anywhere. It was for existence. Now, people have studied the ark for many years, and some scholars and people who's supposed to know about boats said, you know, that boat wouldn't float. It couldn't possibly inhabit two of every kind. And keep people alive for all those 40 days, 40 nights, etc. But now, go to Branson, Missouri, you can see a replica of the ark. Go to other places on the earth, you see the ark has been exactly reconstructed. And now there is common belief that what is reported in the Bible that many people just said, oh, it won't work. Now they see exactly how it could have worked and it did function. Amazing, isn't it? Noah built that big old ark by faith. He got in, the rains came, then he floated out there a million miles from nowhere, and his boat ended up on Mount Ararat. Remember we climbed up Ararat a few months ago? Remember that? We found that uh, boat on top of Mount Ararat. 
And I can imagine that Noah walked out of that ark and he looked around. There was nobody, no people, no inhabitants, no landmarks, no nothing. He started over from zip. A lot of people think that Noah exercised more faith after the flood than he did before the flood. Because what's the first thing Noah did when he got off the boat? The Bible says he built an altar. He worshiped in thanksgiving. The ark was salvation. The altar was transformation. You can be saved and not be transformed. But that's the transformation that took place as Noah had a new chance to begin life on this earth. By faith, Noah. Noah. Let me ask you a question. What is faith? How would you define faith? How do you get faith? How do you continue to live in faith? Does faith grow? Can it grow? Does faith decline? Uh, what do you do when you lose your faith? Can you get it back? Is there such a thing as lose your faith and then reclaiming your faith? We have a lot of questions about faith. You go to Hebrews chapter 11, there's a whole chapter on faith. It's the centerpiece in the Bible on faith. It gives us in the opening verses sort of a general definition of faith. Look at Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtain a good testimony. And by the way, this is the rest of Hebrews. You have a general definition of faith. And then the rest of the chapter tells us men and women in history who live by faith in all kinds of circumstances. And then he says a key verse in verse three, by faith, we understand. Understand there means something you come to believe by evidence, by proof. By faith, we come to believe, we understand that the world, the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. In other words, by the way, the scientists came up with the Big Bang, remember? The Big Bang said, bang! The world came into being. There it is right there in Hebrews, is it not? The world was made by God out of things that were not seen, and boom, there was an explosion, and now there are things that are seen. And this gives us understanding. Let's talk about faith. Three levels. Three levels of faith. Now, they're all sort of subsets here. But let me tell you a basic understanding of faith. First of all, faith is reason. It's reason. It's understanding. It's reason. And then on top of reason, faith is belief. And on top of belief, there is commitment. And then you have faith is reason, and then reason leads to belief, and belief leads to commitment. And then with those three, you have certainty. You see, a lot of people try to move from reason 
to certainty. I'm going to figure all this out. I'm going to work through it. Then I'm going to be certain. It never works like that. Reason is the base. It moves to belief. Then it moves to commitment. And then hopefully it comes to certainty. Up to that point, it's all tentative. It's all, I hope, it's perhaps, it's experimental. Let me tell you something. Except in math, every decision you make, every decision I make comes by way of faith. Therefore, somebody might say, well, you know, I don't need faith. I don't, I don't think about those things. Every decision, every choice we make about everything on the planet comes by the way of faith. You say, well, is it practical? How practical is that? If we can't do anything, accomplish anything, make any decision without faith, that's pretty practical, isn't it? So let's seek to understand faith from the very, very beginning. When you decide who you want your plumber to be, it's a faith decision. You decide who you want to marry, faith decision. You decide if you need surgery, who your surgeon is going to be, a faith decision. Pretty important, wouldn't you say? Why does this work? Let's take a plumber. All right, you got pipes that are rusted all over your house. Need to get a plumber. So you go and use what? Reason. Reason. Try to find a plumber who can do this. You use your mind. You use understanding. Reason. And then you move to belief. Then you say, you know, I believe enough. I've investigated enough and I have reason that this would be my plumber now. I believe he will do it. And then you commit and you give him the job. And once it is completed, all those processes, it's sort of tentative. It's sort of, you know, I don't know. But when it's completed and it works, you have certainty. Picking a mate. A lot of people are not married. You know why? They think they move from reason to certainty. Oh, I'm going to figure all this out. She's the right one. He's the right one. Bang, bang. I'm certain now. No, no, no. It starts with reason. Then you go through a belief. You begin to put it together. And then you make a commitment, which may be engagement. And then when you say, I do, and he says, or he says, I will, there is the certainty that comes. Faith has three basic steps. You don't move from reason to certainty. Let's take a surgeon. Your GP says you need surgery. You go and try to pick a surgeon. You use reason, right? Good idea. You use reason. And then very reasonably, you think this is the person that can do it. Then you have a certain belief about methodology and how it will be done. And then you make a commitment. In that commitment, you lie on that table, put that thing over, count backwards to whatever. <laughs> That's pretty committed, isn't it? Huh? Huh? Commitment. And then following the surgery, things go well, and then you have what? Certainty. Certainty. So faith isn't just something, well, pie in the sky over there. Faith isn't something that we say, well, Christians have faith and non-Christians don't have faith. No, we all have the same amount of faith. The difference is what you put your faith in, what I put my faith in.
for example, let's look at, go back through and talk about reason. Understanding, that's where we start. Scientists normally operate by faith. Scientists do not discover a whole lot of things through inductive reason. What is that? They don't say, well, I see this over here and I see that over there and understand that molecule over there and this works over here. And they put all this together inductively and they come to a conclusion, something that works, something that's accurate. Normally, that's not the way science works. Science works with a faith assumption, with a thesis, with an idea and a concept. And then this is deductive reasoning they begin to deduce from that evidence as to whether or not that faith assumption is accurate. Science operates by faith, primarily. And so we look at the universe. Uh, godless people say, boy, the universe came together by, by chance. It is all came by accident, by atoms coming together back in some primeval moment. Billions of years ago, it just evolved. Let me tell you something. To say this universe came together by chance is like saying there was an explosion in a print shop and outproduced the Webster's Unabridged Dictionary. Man, what are the odds of that? Explosion in a print shop and you have a dictionary perfectly put together, what are the odds in that? Ladies and gentlemen, the odds of that happening are less than the odds that this universe would come together without a designer. Abraham Lincoln, I said it recently, Abraham Lincoln says, you go to outer space, you look back on the earth, you may be an atheist. He said, you stand on the earth and look at outer space. He said, you can't be an atheist. So the idea that all of this came, for example, decisions in your life, faith choices that we make, what if you think that you came into being by chance, that all human beings are here by chance? We came from some primeval uh, mud puddle there. We came here by chance. By chance, something that was inorganic became organic by chance. If you believe that you're here by chance, or if you're here because you have been designed by a designer, what a difference, by design or chance. That makes all the difference in the world and how we make decisions every day of our life. What's right, what's wrong, what will work, what will not work. And these are faith decisions. So faith is reason. Reason. The idea to say, well, you know, I don't have faith that you have in the church. Uh, people here who are not Christians, somebody stand up and tell how Jesus Christ came in their life and changed everything, gave them a fresh new beginning, a new outlook on life, and there's a freshness there they've never found. Somebody's not a Christian, say, boy, you know, I wish I could believe that, but I don't have enough faith. If somebody from Mars came down to this earth and we explained to them about procreation, how we cooperate with God and produce life, and the Marsman would say, I, I, I can't even imagine that. We procreate by the exchanging of earwax. <laughs> they, they, I have no frame of reference. You see, we think people who see someone who comes to Christ have a new life, they back up and say, I have no frame of reference for that. 
I wish I had faith like that. We all have the same amount of faith, ladies and gentlemen. It's just what we put our faith in. And when someone puts their faith into something other than Jesus Christ, and that occupies the core and the center of their life, therefore, it's no wonder that they have trouble believing. We all have the same amount of faith. All, we have the same progressiveness. This is development from reason to belief to commitment and then to certainty. That's how it works. Someone who says, I just, I just need more faith. Let me tell you something. Let's talk about security of believers, for example. Once saved, always saved. Oh, we Baptists love that one. Why do we believe that? It's taught in the Bible. But let's say it another way. Let's say, for example, how are we saved? If we're saved by doing good and not doing evil, we could lose our salvation, couldn't we? If that's how we're saved, it's because when we begin to do evil and not good, we'd be lost. We were saved by doing good and not evil. Now we can be lost by doing evil and not good, right? But we're not saved by doing good by works. We're saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are eternally secure. Logical. Faith. And we, when we wander away from God in Christ and we slide back because we are in Christ, we know that and our faith begins to operate and we feel like someone who is no longer at home in this life. Uh, we become a bomb. You know what a bomb is? A bomb is, is something that in the center, in the core, there is a compound that is unstable. That's the reason it's a bomb. And if your life and my life, there's a compound that is unstable, we haven't blown up, but we will blow up. We're bombs. In the center of your life and my life, when there's God in Jesus Christ, he gives us stability, stability. And we understand this through reason and through belief. You see, as Christians, we look back on the facts of history. You and I can believe that Christmas is real. God visited this earth in human flesh, incarnation. You could believe that. We can believe that Jesus died on the cross for all your garbage and my garbage. We can believe that, our substitute. We can believe that God raised him from the dead. We can believe that, the resurrection, Easter. But you can believe that, but it really doesn't become yours until that which happens in the past affects how we live in the present. In other words, we have to live on the basis of, our, of the gospel on the basis of what Jesus has done. Now, Peter and Paul were brought up as Jews, right? And they were taught that a Gentile, and a Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew in the Bible. If you, you're either Jew or a non-Jew. If you're a non-Jew, you're a Gentile. And Peter and Paul were taught that Gentiles could never know God. Why? Because their pedigree and because of their practice. Their pedigree, a Gentile is not from Abraham. A Jew's pedigree is from Abraham. A Gentile's practice is not keeping the law. A Jew's practice is keeping the law. Therefore, a Gentile could never know God. But you read the book of Acts. 
There is Peter over there, and he gets with Cornelius, who was a Gentile, a centurion, and he tells Cornelius about God in Christ, and zip, Cornelius, a Gentile, accepts Jesus Christ and becomes a Christian. There's a problem. Peter had no problem. He saw that this Gentile had become a Christian. He saw that the performance of Jesus was put in his life. The pedigree of Jesus was put in his life. So as a Christian, so Peter went over there and loved eating breakfast with him, and he fell in love with bacon. <laughs> Little eyes of Jesus. And Peter just loved the way the Gentiles ate, but some big shots from Jerusalem came. Some of the family of James there in the strict Judaism who believed you had to take all the practices of Jew after you received Christ as Messiah, and they saw that Peter was eating with the Gentiles. They heard about it, so while they were there, Peter didn't eat with Cornelius anymore. He, he did without bacon. Paul, in Galatians chapter 2, he faced Peter with this hypocrisy. He said, Pete, if these Gentiles are really Christians and you've been told that everything is clean, don't change how you live because those who come who haven't yet caught up with what it means to be born again and a child of God. He looked in Peter's face and pointed it out to him. This is what happens to us, ladies and gentlemen. We know all these facts historically, but we have to take them and incorporate that into our lives and discover this is how we then live. Oh, I'm burdened with my sin. I can't handle this. We have to live on the basis our sin has been covered by the blood of Christ. We're forgiven. Don't let that beat you down and keep you down. Live on the basis of that. That's a part of the belief system that we have. And then finally, look at the last thing we see here. Remember, we're talking about faith, reason, belief, doctrine, what we have. Then there comes commitment, commitment, commitment. You walk on the edge of a cliff, slippery rocks, and you slide and you start falling down that cliff hundreds of feet below. And as you're sliding down, you see ahead a branch sticking up out of the cliff. You're going to slide right by that branch. How much faith is it going to take for you to grab hold of that branch? Huh? Oh, it's going to, no, it's going to take, no, it's not, it's not going to take hardly any faith, is it, when you're sliding down that cliff to grab that branch? But once you grab that branch, that's a little faith that you have, but that branch in its strength will hold you up and save you. When we extend our hand to Jesus Christ, we extend our hand to him. He grabs us and he puts in you and me his pedigree. He's the son of God. Is that a pretty good family to be in? He puts in you and me his practice, a life of perfection. Is that enough for you and me? And therefore that gives us salvation. Faith, faith, faith. It works everywhere. We're on top of our game, we're on the bottom of our game. Faith, what is it? Faith, how do we get it? Faith, we can't lose it. 
once we're in Christ and Christ is within us, and then we can handle whatever life puts in four of us on our plate. And that is the certainty of our faith. We see it works. It applies. It keeps us going. It sees us through. We were saying earlier, it is well with my soul. I was in Jerusalem, some of us, oh, about a month or so now, and I went to a little hotel there. It's been there for many, many years. That hotel was bought by the Spafford family, and Horatio and Anna Spafford, you think it is well with my soul, it goes back to what happened. Chicago Fire was in, I think, 1871. I'm not sure. In that fire, Horatio Spafford was a lawyer, owned property in Chicago, very wealthy, and everything he had was wiped out. He sent his wife and four little daughters to London to go to a D.L. Moody crusade to try to have a moment of getting over their tremendous loss. On that voyage from New York to London, the middle of the Atlantic, the ship went down. All four daughters were lost. Anna was saved. Somehow she was on a board and when she regained consciousness, she looked around, all four of her daughters had drowned. When she found safety there, was rescued, she sent a telegram back to her husband who was coming over later to be with them. And it said simply, saved alone. What am I to do? Horatio Stafford went over there, joined his wife, and they saw and were led to believe that God had a special calling for their life. And so they moved to Jerusalem and they bought this house, which is now a hotel, and they began to take in orphans. They began to take in street people. They began to feed and love and share with those people, Jews and Muslims, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they did that for the rest of their life. And on the way over, Horatio Stafford asked the ship he was on to stop over the spot where his four little daughters had ground months before. And there he wrote, it is well with my soul. Peace like a river ascendeth my day, good things. Sorrow when like sea billows roll, bad things. Said whatever, whatever, whatever the cost. Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That, ladies and gentlemen, is faith in action. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Well, before we leave you today, Dr. Young is here to answer a couple of questions coming out of the message we've just heard. Dr. Young, how can listeners practice making daily decisions by faith? Do you have a biblical way to evaluate your own decisions? I pray regularly to have the wisdom of God. And in all thy ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. I seek to acknowledge him in all my ways every single day. I fail many times. And then I ask in my total recognition that he is running my life. 
that he will give me wisdom in choices, in decisions, in everything I say, everywhere I go, and whatever I do, and whatever I read. And I, I'm working to have the mind of Christ, not just a brain that has facts, but have literally the mind of Christ. That gives us the ability in every season of life to represent our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Now, Dr. Young, Noah chose to step out in faith after hearing God's voice. How can our listeners evaluate the voice of God in their lives? God sometimes shouts at us in the events of life, and sometimes he just speaks to us through other people. But in my experience, it's when I withdraw and get quiet that I am able to hear his still small voice. There's so much clutter and clamor in the world in every season, especially holiday seasons, especially the demands of life and the discussions of politics, the discussions of morality, the discussion of all the many crisis events we're confronted with all around the world, how super it is to be able to time out and let him speak to us. Be still, be quiet in the middle of all the racket of life and let him speak. And then I trust the Holy Spirit will empower us to respond as Christ would have us to respond. The challenge for me and the challenge for every follower of Jesus is to develop the mind of our Lord and our Savior. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.